Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. The Christian life is a life of mountains and valleys. There are mixtures of joy and sorrow. At times you may find yourself walking on your high places, and at times you will definitely find yourself passing through the deep ravines and dark valleys of affliction. As we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter this morning, I want us to think together about faith on the mountains and in the valley. And we read today beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through the end of the chapter. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak, and of Samson and Jephthah, of David also and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In this wonderful catalog of the faithful, the inspired writer has been moving consecutively as you will remember through the Old Testament. He started in Genesis with Abel, Enoch, and Noah. You'll read about them at the first part of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. By faith, Noah moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. You'll find their stories in Genesis 4 through 9, the very first of your Bible. Then he moves to Abraham, and then the other patriarchs in Genesis 12 through 50. He deals with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph in the next portion of Hebrews chapter 11. And his point is that in the midst of an apostate world, there have been these faithful servants of God who have endured the pressures from the outside and remained consistent in their service to the Lord. Then he's moved to the book of Exodus and talked about Moses. That was our subject last time. As the writer tells us that Moses made a choice. He chose rather to suffer affliction with God's people than to enjoy the pleasures that were his by adoptive right 
in Egypt's palace, he renounced the riches of the world for the ignominy and the reproach of God's people. You say, why would anybody ever make a choice like that? Because of faith in God, they esteemed the reproach of Christ, like Moses did, greater riches than all the treasures in this world. So he's moved through Genesis and Exodus, and we've gone through 30 verses. And now he moves to Joshua in verses 30 and 31, the book of Joshua, as he talks about the walls of Jericho falling down and the harlot Rahab perishing not with them that believed not, but her life was spared. That's in the book of Joshua. Then he moves to the book of Judges in verse 32. Talks about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, some of these great judges. Then he talks about David and Samuel. That's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And then real quickly, <laughs> he covers the remainder of the Old Testament in just a very few verses. He said, and time would fail me to tell of all of these others who did these fantastic things. They quenched the violence of fire, stopped the mouths of lions, out of weakness were made strong, they waxed valiant in the fight. And he just, in a few verses, summarizes the rest of the Old So he's moved through Genesis, Exodus, he hits Joshua quickly, Judges quickly, 1 Samuel quickly, and then he says, and the rest. It's like he says, etc., etc., and so on. You know, in other words, you have these examples of faith. What he's done is he spent the first 40 minutes of his sermon on his first two points. And now the last five minutes, he tries to cram the rest of the material in. <laughs> and I can identify with that because I've done that many times in my attempts to preach the gospel. I've delivered many a sermon in which the material I intended to cover was greater than the time allotted to me for the sermon. And I didn't manage my time properly, and I ended up spending the bulk of my time on the first one or two points and then had to just say, and let me just get the rest of it, let me just add this in real quickly. That's sort of what he does here in the end of this chapter. He says, time would fail me. And you say, well, he's writing a letter. But you remember Hebrews is written in the form of a homily or a sermon. So it's like he's delivering a sermon. And he said, I've already told you about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Moses. And he says, and by the way, there are many more examples of faith. I just don't have time to cover them right now. David and Samuel and Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and all these other prophets. He just sort of summarizes it all as a divinely inspired addendum an inspired etc cetera, etc cetera, if you please may i say this is another argument for a pauline authorship of the book of hebrews you may remember when we began this series 37 years ago <laughs> we um, talked about the fact that there are many questions about who the author of hebrews is but it's my conviction that hebrews is the apostle paul's letter to the jews you know paul was the apostle to the gentiles but he uh, was blessed by God to write this letter, this sermon to these Jews, these Hebrews. I believe that Paul is the author, and we gave several reasons for that. One of the reasons is the similarity in this passage in Hebrews 11 at the end of the chapter. The staccato, terse list that he gives us here is so similar to many other passages in Paul's letters in the New Testament. For instance, you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 22, that's that passage where he comes to the end of the Thessalonian letter and he adds a whole bunch of staccato imperatives 
together. He says, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good, and everything give thanks. You know, just bam, 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 just real quickly. He does the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 18, when he says, not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, mind not high things, but condescend to men of lowest. He just deals with a number of subjects that seem disconnected from each other. And what he's doing is he's saying, these are things I wanted to talk to you about, and I'll just give you the imperative. I'll give you the exhortation, though I'm not going to elaborate on it at this time. It's Titus 3, 8 through 11 is another passage. Those passages are very similar to the style that you see here at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. Now that's a technical point, but let me give you the main point of the passage this morning. This passage at the end of Hebrews 11 teaches us that in the midst of the vicissitudes of life, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, and you've all been there in both places and you will be again, faith will carry you through. Whether you're in a relatively smooth time of ease and comfort or whether you're passing through the deep valleys of affliction, whether you're riding high in victory, stopping the mouths of lions, killing giants, quenching the violence of fire, conquering Jericho, whether you're experiencing triumph or whether you're facing tragedy. Faith is the secret to consistency. Faith in God will serve you well in both places. And in fact, it can accomplish fantastic things in our lives. The entire Old Testament testifies to faith's exploits, to the extraordinary achievements of a very ordinary people that trusted God. There's a verse in Daniel 11.32 that I remember when I read this passage in Hebrews. It says, those who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That is, they'll accomplish amazing things, exploits. An exploit borders on the miraculous. And he says, the people who know their God. And I would ask you today, do you know your God? Are you familiar with his character? Is he real to you? That verse says, the people who know God, that is, the people who are acquainted with him, who know him, of course, in their hearts because they've been born again, but the people who know him in their experience as being a faithful God, a trustworthy God, a sovereign God, a God with all power, a God who's all wise, people who have proven him through the many years, through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come and God has been with me all the way. You say, I know the Lord in that sense. You know, there's a difference in knowing about somebody and knowing them intimately. I um, know about the President of the United States, but if you were to ask me, do you know him? I'd say, oh yeah, I can tell you his name, I can tell you where he lives, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. But do you, have you ever met him? No, I don't know him that well. Are you conversant with him? Certainly not. But I'll tell you, dear friends, uh, there are people who are in his inner circle. And that's true of everybody. I'm not talking about just hearing, knowing that God exists or hearing about him from time to time. I'm talking about somebody who knows him intimately. The people who know their God will be strong and do exploits, fantastic things in their lives. And as you read your Old Testament, there are some extraordinary stories. Now, most of our lives are not extraordinary. Would you agree? 
my life is very ordinary. We get up in the morning, we have our cup of coffee and Pop-Tart, and we're off to the races. We pay our bills, and we try to keep the grass cut, and um, much of our lives are unspectacular. The warp and woof of regular life, my beloved, is uneventful. And the content child of grace is somebody who's learned to walk with Christ in the ho-hum routines, the mundane routines of daily life, as well as in the exciting big meeting, you know, special event seasons of life. We can't be at the county fair every week, you know. We can't have the big crowds all the time. The bulk of our lives are unspectacular, uneventful, but I'm telling you, there are a few seasons of hard, glorious running in the life of every child of grace. There are a few seasons of great achievement. There are some defining moments in each of our lives, strategically important moments in which the tide turns. And you say, what a watershed event that was in my life. And I dare say, my beloved, that in those seasons, when you face your giant, your Goliath, when you are called upon to be in the fiery furnace, and it looks like certain demise, when the lions are around you and you're to spend the night with these ravenous beasts, when the walls of Jericho in your life seem to rise heavenward to the point that they are insurmountable, so far as you can tell, I'm saying today that faith will serve you well on the mountaintop. The God in whom you believe, in other words, is able to do the impossible. Whether on the mountaintop of great achievement or in the valley of great sorrow and affliction, both in life's masteries and in life's miseries. And I think you saw that if you were paying attention in the reading this morning. The first half of our reading speaks of great achievement. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down flat. By faith, Gideon conquered the Midianites. Samson gained victory over the Philistines. David defeated Goliath. Samuel and the prophets were faithful to God. They subdued kingdoms. They wrought righteousness. That is, they accomplished great victories. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. This is faith on the mountaintop. The people who know their God will do exploits. Don't you love reading these great triumphs, these stories, these narratives in the Old Testament about Faith's triumph in the lives of God's people. Faith on the mountaintop. Let's look at these examples briefly. First, he mentions the book of Joshua. Now, we've moved from Genesis to the book of Exodus. Now, in Hebrews 11, we go to the book of Joshua, verses 30 and 31, and he gives us two examples of faith in the book of Joshua. First, the walls of Jericho falling down, and then the harlot Rahab perishing not with the rest of the city after she had received the spies with peace. Now you remember the story of the walls of Jericho, don't you? Those walls were so thick that historians tell us two teams of horses, breast to breast, could race on the top of those walls. They were scores of feet thick. And there was no way that an enemy could ever penetrate. They were impregnable and impenetrable. And therefore, when the children of Israel crossed Jordan and they came first to the city of Jericho, they said the city is walled to the sky. And the people there are greater and stronger than we, and there's no way we can overtake it. You know, for 40 years, that report had intimidated the Hebrews, and they waited in the wilderness because they didn't think they could conquer Jericho. 
Joshua and Caleb, though, said we are well able to overcome it. The God who brought us out of Egypt on dry ground is able to conquer this fortress of a city. But they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, that generation died and their children reached adulthood. And with a new generation, Joshua and Caleb led them into the land of Canaan. They crossed the River Jordan. You remember the story? And they came to Jericho and God said, now here's your battle plan. Now, how are they going to conquer Jericho? Do you think they're going to use explosive charges strategically planted at positions on the wall to blow it up? That they're going to plant C4 and dynamite in the trenches around the wall through the night and maybe conquer the city? Is that God's plan? You think they're going to use perhaps missiles that they launch from several miles away to target points in the wall to be able to defeat the city? Or battering rams and just rush the city with a million armies strong, you know, and overwhelm it with the momentum of battle? No, here's God's plan. I want you to get in a line and march around the city and be quiet. Don't say a word. Every day, I want you to march around the city, just all the way around it. You circle that city in that line, do it one time a day for six days. Okay, that sounds a little unconventional, but we'll do it. He said, on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. You make seven circles and don't say a word. And when you finish the seventh round, he said, I want everybody to shout. And when you shout, he says, I will give you victory over the city of Jericho. And sure enough, they obeyed the Lord. They marched around it one time a day for six days. On the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. And on the seventh time, as soon as they had finished that final cycle, the people lifted up a great shout and the walls of Jericho fell down flat. God was showing them that he was the one giving them the victory. It wasn't because they were militarily strong, because of their prowess, because of their arsenal of weaponry. It wasn't because of anything in them. This could be explained by nothing but the supernatural blessing of God. Only God could accomplish a victory with such a battle plan. But you know, it was a categorical victory. They conquered Jericho. You say, well, why would they believe that this battle plan would work? Because the God who gave it to them was trustworthy. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down flat. They did things God's way, according to God's word, trusting in God's power. And God showed himself to do exceeding abundantly above all that they could have asked or thought. But you know, there's one house on that wall that, while the rest was demolished, this one house stood intact. And the next verse says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. For she had received the spies with peace. She knew the true God. She had heard his report. No doubt his grace dwelt in her heart. And Rahab had taken care of the spies and gotten their word that they would not do her or her family any harm. And she had bound the scarlet line in the window. Do you remember? As the signal that when the army came in, they would spare her house. And Rahab became a Jewish convert. And by the way, if you read the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, you'll find that Rahab is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by faith, conquest was made in the book of Joshua. Now move to the book of Judges, verse 32. And what more shall I say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. These are judges. Now, during this time, they didn't have a king. 
They had uh, judges who would adjudicate matters of dispute, but the law was very loose and lax. I mean, you know, it was not a real structured kind of environment. The people were to live under the lordship of God. They were to honor him as their king and do what he said, but some of these judges played very strategic roles in the history of Israel. For when people are sort of left without laws and restrictions, without a lot of regulations, they tend to wander, don't they? You know, freedom's a dangerous thing. That's why, you know, the legalist wants to put everything in a neat, tidy little package because to let people sort of live freely, you know, that's why big government continues to try to take over in every form of society, whether it's politically on a national level or locally or in a school system. You know, that's why everything tends toward this battle between libertarianism and legalism because the fact is people find it hard to manage freedom. I'd much rather live in freedom than to live under tyranny, hadn't you? The period of the judges was a time when every man tended to do that which was right in his own eyes. The last verse of that book says, anarchy was the tendency. And because of that, you'll see a series of cycles in this book. The people are blessed by God, and they, in their prosperity, they lose sight of God. They have a little while in which they're riding high, and then they lose sight of God, and they begin to compromise with the world, and the Lord in his displeasure sells them into the hand of the enemy, and in their extremity they cry out and pray for, in repentance for God to help them, and he raises up a judge or a savior to deliver them, and then they find release and freedom, and they're prosperous again, and then the cycle repeats all over again. That's the story of the book of Judges. And some of the judges that he raised up were people like this, Samson. And Samson conquered the Philistines. In his death, he slew more than he had slain in his life. And he did that, it says, by faith. Gideon. Gideon was a Don Knotts kind of character. You know, the ghost in Mr. Chicken. The Lord called him to deliver Israel. And Gideon is back there hiding, making sure that he's protecting himself and what is his and He doesn't want to be exposed, and the Lord comes to him, the angel of the Lord, and says, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor, you courageous soldier. And Gideon starts looking over his shoulder when the Lord says, You're a mighty man of valor. He says, Who are you talking to? Maybe somebody back there. And the Lord says, No, I'm talking about you. You're the mighty man of valor. And he says, By you I will deliver my people from the Midianites. And Gideon says, Well, Lord, I I don't think I'm capable. And he says, "Uh, Give me a sign. He said, Lord, make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry. And he woke up the next morning, the fleece was wet and the ground was dry. And the Gideon said, well, that might have happened anyway. Lord, make the ground wet and the fleece dry. The Lord gives him that sign also. And finally, Gideon is told to go and spy on the Midianites. And he comes to their camp one night and he hears one soldier tell another soldier in his tent, I'll tell you, I'm afraid we're going to lose this battle. Because he said, I had a dream. I saw a vision of a cake of barley bread, rolling down the mountain, and like a bowling ball, it destroyed all the tents of Midian. And he said, this is nothing else but Gideon, the mighty man of God. And Gideon, with his knees knocking, hears his name. They think he's a mighty hero, and Gideon is just scared to death. But you know, whenever it came time to do battle, Gideon said, I want everybody to shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Add me in there, you know, and give me a little credit too. (laughs) But you know, the Lord, by faith, because Gideon trusted God, delivered 
the Midianites into their hands. And then he tells about the prophets and King David in verse 32. And of David also and Samuel and the prophets. We're talking about faith on the mountain. Faith achieving great victory. You know, David was one of the heroes of faith. And we all remember, don't we, David's conquest of Goliath, the giant of Gath. Goliath, the Philistine giant, was intimidating. But the little shepherd lad, David, stood up and said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's the first time the name of God has been mentioned in that whole narrative in 1 Samuel 17. The rest of them had forgotten about God. And that's our problem, isn't it? We tend to forget about the Lord when we look at the big problems around us. We forget that there's a God who's real. Faith believes that God is real. That you can call on Him. You can talk to Him and He is involved. It's not just a purely secular kind of orientation, a this world only kind of mindset, but the person of faith is somebody who believes that God is involved and that He's accessible and that He promises to help us And David said, this Philistine is challenging the people of God. He explained the scene in spiritual or theological terms, not merely in worldly or natural terms. He saw the spiritual lesson in what was happening in the world around him. My friends, may I say that's the perspective of faith. Did you know that every problem that we face in our world today has a spiritual component to it? I mean, there is... A spiritual power and, you know, unseen forces at work in world events, in world affairs. You say, well, everything can be explained on a purely naturalistic level. I'm telling you, dear friends, that uh, the prince of the power of the air, spiritual wickedness in high places, you know, the rulers of the darkness of this world have their finger in the pot. They have their hand in the mix. They're working to try to complicate the things that are happening around us in the culture, on the planet. But you know, while Satan desires to have people that he may sift them as wheat, while he's involved, even though we may be oblivious to it, yet he has his insidious plans, I'm telling you, you have an advocate. Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to have you, but I have prayed for you. And I'm telling you, you have an adversary this morning, but you also have an advocate. You have one who wants to do you harm and who's trying to confuse the issues, but at the same time there is one who is on your side who's praying that your faith would fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Indeed, David explains the situation with Goliath in spiritual terms. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. (laughs) The battle is the Lord's. David took one of those stones, put it in his sling. And what would it take to fell a giant? Somebody says it would probably take a bazooka or a shoulder-launched missile or maybe a high-powered rifle at least. David took this stone and with the skill of a shepherd who had done it before, he slung that stone and it found its mark and hit its bullseye right between Goliath's eyes. And the big giant fell down flat. David came, took his sword out of his sheath. Goliath's own sword. I can just see that little shepherd lad, David, pulling that big mighty sword out. and Barely been able to get it up. And he chopped off his head and held his head up. And when the children of Israel saw that 
Philistine champion was dead, they came out of hiding and chased the Philistines away. <laughs> David won a mighty victory. You say, boy, David was quite a warrior. I'm telling you, David was an ordinary boy, like you and me, but yet he had faith in a mighty God. And this ordinary young man, because of his faith in a very real God, was able to accomplish exploits. He knew his God, and he was strong and did exploits, extraordinary achievements. And then he talks about those who stopped the mouths of lions. Do you know what story in your Old Testament that references? Daniel in the den of hungry lions. You'll read about that in the book of Daniel. And we've heard these stories. You've probably heard them since childhood. Daniel in the lion's den. The lions, of course, were natural predators. It would be unsafe to spend the night to share a room with some hungry lions. But you know, when the next day came, Daniel was alive and the lions were at peace. They were content. They hadn't opened their mouth against him for the Lord had preserved Daniel. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. That's no doubt an allusion to the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, because they wouldn't compromise their fate, the law required them to be cast in the burning fiery furnace. It was heated seven times more than it was wont to be heated. That is more than normal. And in fact, it was so hot that the men who cast them in there not were, not were just singed, but they were slain. They died. But when the king looked in, he said, didn't we cast three men into the fire? And his advisor said, that's true, O king. We cast three in there. He said, behold, I see four. And they're not bound, but they're loose. And they're not laying there burned to a crisp, but they're walking around, loose and walking. And the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. You know, liberal scholars say, well, that probably means like unto a son of the gods. I have no doubt that that was the Lord himself who was in there in the midst of the fire with them. And he was real to them. And I'm telling you, he will be with you in the midst of your fire. Faith on the mountaintop. Do you have faith that God can bless you to do the impossible? To accomplish and achieve the extraordinary. You say, Brother Mike, I see where these people like David and Daniel and the three Hebrew children and Elijah and Elisha. You know, he goes on to say, verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. No doubt that's a reference to the two miracles in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. In which there was an actual physical resurrection. Elijah raised the uh, widow's son back to life, 1 Kings chapter 17. Then 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha was called by the great woman of Shunem to raise the Shunammite son, who'd had a heat stroke apparently. He'd been out in the field with his father, you remember, and he said, oh, my head, my head. And they, the father said, carry him to his mother. And he laid upon his, her lap until he died. And she sent for Elisha the prophet who came and stretched himself upon the child and you know, said, prayed for him. And, and then it says the child's flesh waxed warm and the child sneezed. You say, what does that mean spiritually, Brother Mike? I have no idea. I think it just means that he was alive. You know, you sneeze, that's pretty good evidence you're alive. And uh, the child sneezed and he gave him back to his mother. I love how the Bible sometimes includes little details that are just, uh, you know, you think that's incidental. But uh, obviously there's a meaning to it. I'm saying, my beloved, that by faith in God, each of these people accomplished fantastic, unbelievable victories. For the God in whom they trusted recompensed their faith with extraordinary successes. But I want you to notice now at the rest of this passage, faith in the valley. 
for I've been there probably more than I've been on the mountaintop. I've had a few achievements, a few successes, a few triumphs that I can attribute to nothing but the miraculous intervention of God in my life. He's real, and I've seen it. More than that, I've spent time in trouble and affliction and trial and difficulty, and you have too, no doubt. He says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Now, you may know that there is an idea in religious circles called the health and wealth gospel. I think it's probably a misnomer. The word gospel means good news. And I see very little good news in the prosperity or health and wealth idea. It's the idea that if you serve the Lord, he'll make you rich. You won't ever get sick. You won't ever have any problems. If you serve the Lord, you'll be, you know, one of the rich and famous. You'll be part of the elite. You'll have victory after victory after victory and never any defeats. And if you have sufferings in your life, that's evidence that you lack faith. You ever heard that? That's a very popular idea today. It's so inconsistent with the stories of these Bible characters, especially even people like Paul in the New Testament. You know, he spent time in prison. The apostles, they, they had their troubles. The early church. But these people say if you have enough faith, you won't ever have any sufferings. Well, notice how in this chapter on faith, he not only speaks of the people who experienced great success and triumph, but he talks about people who suffered in misery. This list of faith and misery is as much a testimony to the exploits of faith as the other is, though it may not appear to be so on the surface. Let me read you something a commentator named Stephen Cole has written. He said, the first part of this list in Hebrews 11 teaches that sometimes God blesses people who trust in him with spectacular results. Even though they are flawed people, God uses those who trust him to accomplish things that are explainable only by his power. That part of our text is exciting, but we must keep reading. Sometimes God blesses those who trust him with the grace to endure horrible trials without wavering. Those on the second half of the list were just as much people of faith as those on the first half. In fact, you could argue that they had greater faith because it's not as easy to trust God when you're being scourged, stoned, and sawn in two as it is when you're seeing foreign armies put to flight and the dead raised to life. While all of us, if we could, would sign up to be in the first group, we need to recognize that sometimes God is pleased to withhold spectacular results and bless us instead with his grace as our sufficiency in overwhelming trials. The point of this last half of the passage here in Hebrews 11 is that faith does not exclude us from suffering. He mentions the martyrs. While women, some women had their dead resurrected and returned, restored to them, like the woman of Zarephath and the great woman of Shunem, yet others were tortured, he says, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. By the way, that word tortured is the Greek word from which we get our word timpani. Timpani. You've heard of a timpani drum? A big drum with a piece of animal skin or whatever they use these days, stretched, taut over it, you know, and they bang on it with the mallets. The word tortured here means to stretch across an instrument of torture, often called a rack, and beat it with a club like a person would beat a timpani drum. There was actually a form of torture in which a person would be stretched on a rack, taut, you know, to where they couldn't stretch them anymore, and they would beat them with clubs until they died. That's one of the ways the martyrs died. If these faithful martyrs 
held fast to the Lord even in the face of such a cruel death. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, What wondrous faith it was that sustained these saints under the awful tortures to which they were subjected. You say, Brother Mike, what motivated them? What was their incentive to keep going? The conviction that not only was God real, but heaven was real. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance. You see, they could have obtained a reprieve from death if they would have just recanted, if they would have denied Christ. If they would have renounced their faith, they could have been restored back to physical life. But it says instead of opting for that, they chose to endure the sufferings that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were looking forward to a life that will never end. You know, there's a better resurrection coming. Better than what, Brother Mike? Better than a mere reprieve from physical death and prolonging of physical life. You know, we're living in a day in which people think that the worst thing that could happen to a person is death. I'm telling you, dear friends, that there are things worse than death. And there are things better than physical life. Now, I enjoy life. I'm telling you, I'm happy to be alive. I love the sunshine, and I, I like the rain, and thankful for the rain as well. I love the flowers. I love the birds singing. I love people. I enjoy interacting with old and young alike thankful for the taste of a good meal. I'm thankful for a soft bed. I just enjoy every day. I say, thank you, Lord. Oh, what a wonderful world. I'm happy to be alive. But I'm telling my friends, there's a world that's better than this one. A world where there are no more tears. There is no more pain. There are no more sad goodbyes. There's a world, my beloved, in which there's no sin or sorrow or suffering. And it's real. It's just as real as this one, in fact, more so. And your departed loved ones who belong to the Lord are there right now in the presence in a very real sense. They're just as conscious there as you are here, probably more so. And they're happier there than they've ever been here. You think of the happiest you ever saw them here. I'm telling you, my friends, that's just a very small scale example of the joy that is theirs over yonder. And these people, by faith, when they were going through cruel tortures, stretched on the rack, endured it. Now, they could have been released. All they had to do was curse Christ, renounce their faith, and they would be restored to physical life. But they endured it, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. He says, others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, more over of bonds and imprisonment. That's a reference, no doubt, to Jeremiah who was falsely accused and put in the stocks and was mocked and ridiculed by the public as they made him the blunt of their jokes. And then he was imprisoned and finally he was placed into a cistern, a sewer, where he sunk in the mire. And he would have died there had not an Ethiopian had mercy upon him and delivered him. All of that happened to him because he was faithful to God. Others were stoned. That no doubt is a reference to the priest Zechariah. You read about him in Second Chronicles 24, Jesus mentioned him in Matthew 23, 35, when he says that he was stoned to death between the temple and the altar. And he said, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar, the Lord will require all of that blood from this generation. Others were stoned and some were sawn asunder. You know, Isaiah was sawed in two with a wooden saw. That's how he died the faithful prophet Isaiah. Others, he says, suffered afflictions, privations, poverty, hunger, want, 
and abject destitution. They wandered in sheepskins and goatskins and lived in caves. You say, Brother Mike, I thought if you served the Lord, everything would go well for you. Well, faith does not necessarily mean success all the time. In fact, there's not only the power of his resurrection, but there's the fellowship of his sufferings. But whatever your circumstances, may I say, if your faith is in the Lord, if he's real and if heaven's real, you can endure it. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. They were too good for this world. Did you know there are people who've lived in the past who've been so maligned and mistreated that this world did not deserve them? They were too good for this world. There were some people, my friends, who are in heaven and that's where they belong to be because this world did not deserve them. The world was not worthy of them. Their integrity and love for God stood in stark contrast to the hatred and animosity of this world. The light of their godly lives is the antithesis of the darkness of the world's sin. The church father Ambrose in the fourth century said it like this, they were found most strong when they were thought to be most weak. They did not shrink from the mockings of men because they looked for heavenly rewards. They on whom the beauty of eternal light was shining did not seek to be diverted by pleasure. Refreshed by the hope of eternal grace, the burning heat of summer did not parch them, nor did the cold of icy regions break their spirit. For the warm breath of devotion invigorated them. They did not fear the bonds of men, for Jesus had set them free. They did not desire to be rescued from death, for they looked forward to being raised to life by Christ of whom the world was not worthy. John Newton says it in that hymn, doesn't he? Amazing grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Can you say that today? His grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. My beloved, I'm headed for home. And if you know your God today, you can do exploits, whether it's on the mountaintop or in the valleys, for both are equally fantastic and spectacular. I'm saying whether you have a great victory over the enemy or whether you endure great pressure and destitution and suffering, it's still a testimony to the power and strength of faith that God is real and heaven is real. We can see the reality of faith both in the successes and in the sufferings of these saints. And then he says, these all obtained a good report through faith. Go back to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Deborah, Jephthah, Joshua, Rahab, Samson, David, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, these all obtained a good report through faith. That is, God has endorsed their lives with his blessing. He reports that they were true and genuine people. They have a good epitaph. But he says, yet they received not the promise. They lived looking forward to something that was yet to come. God having provided some better thing for us. My beloved, you and I have our leg of the relay to run. They've run their race. You know, I've been watching the World Championships in Eugene, Oregon, the track and field championships the last couple of weeks. Watched uh, Sydney McLaughlin break the world record in the women's 400-meter hurdles. I've uh, watched the women's 4 by 100 relay team uh, win gold for America last night. And 
anyway, it's just exciting to watch these athletes compete. I like the relays, you know, where one person carries the baton, and after they've run their leg of the journey, the next person takes it, and it's their turn. And then the next person, and then finally the anchor leg. And if one person fails, the whole team loses. You see, each person's investment is important to the success of the team as a whole. That's the image in these last two verses. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. You and I, it's our turn now to carry the baton of faith in this relay of truth. We are in a long line of faithful people today. Learn to see the significance of the moment, my friends, from this biblical perspective. Your life matters right now. You're doing something significant. You are participating in the relay of truth that has come down through the ages. And we're at the end of the journey. Let us not be disqualified by failing to finish the race. And you say, well, how can we be faithful, Brother Mike? The same way these people were. And the next chapter is going to tell you as we move into chapter 12 by looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus Oh.